This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to Brew Different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. The thing about um, vacuum failure, you know, it's uh, it's real. It happens. It's uh, it's shocking, you know, to see tanks that have been imploded and oftentimes before a brewer can do anything about it, it's too late. So it's just one of those things where you have to have good situational awareness, you know, understand the cause of these problems and, you know, do everything you can to not put yourself in a position where something like that can occur. This week on the show, understanding stainless steel alloys, corrosion, vacuum failures, and more. Hi, this is Ashton Lewis. I'm with BSG, and I'm the manager of training and technical support. Uh, BSG is out of Shakopee, Minnesota, but I work out of my home here in Springfield, Missouri. Stainless steel is man-made. We can't just dig it out of the ground. We should probably start with a definition. What exactly is stainless steel? Well, a loose definition of stainless steel is an alloy that contains iron, chromium, and then oftentimes other alloying elements such as nickel, uh, which would be um, common for you know, 304 stainless steel. And then depending on the different grades, there's other alloying elements. So the, the most common stainless steel we use in, in the brewing industry is 304. And 304 is um, 18% uh, chromium and 18 per, 8% nickel. So it's called 18.8. Um, in the old days, you would see that as a designation. So that's uh, 304 is also called 18 18% chromium, 8% nickel. And then the other common stainless steel we use in the brewing industry is 316 or the so-called 316L grade. And the principal difference between 316 and 304 is that 316, uh, 316 includes molybdenum. So the, both of those stainless steels um, are based on iron. That's the, the major ingredient of stainless steel, which also is the, the major ingredient of common steel you know, so-called mild steel. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the basic, uh, 
uh, types of steels we use in brewing, and those are considered austenitic. So austenitic steel really refers to the crystalline structure of the steel. Um, it's probably you know beyond what we want to talk about today, but if you see the word austenitic, that's describing the the crystalline structure. And one one key property of austenitic steels uh, that's real obvious is that they tend to be non magnetic. And and if you see the designation of three hundred four or three sixteen, whatever, you already know it's going to be austenitic. Anything in that that three hundred class is going to be considered austenitic, right? That is correct. Uh huh. Okay. All right. Um, you just mentioned several of the ingredients um, in that alloy. Um, are, is there anything else that's in small quantities, or is there anything else that's sort of like a you know part of the secret sauce for anybody's individual recipe, or is there not any room for um, for wiggle room in there? Well, the yes, there's actually a lot of different alloying elements for for different types of steels uh, for. 316 and 304, the, the main ingredients, the common ingredients are iron, chromium, and nickel. Uh, 316 has molybdenum. There's also a small amount of carbon. So there's a you know allowable percentage of carbon. And both of those steels are uh, typically uh, used in so-called L-grade, which is low carbon. And then um, there can be a little bit of nitrogen in, in those grades as well. And then other other stainless steel types might have alloying ingredients such as copper, uh, sulfur, um, titanium, you know, different uh, different alloying elements that are used. And then within different alloys, uh, different types of stainless steels, the um, the ingredient composition. So you know, if you will, of the alloy changes as well. So that there's one alloy that's a little bit. Um, it's not really exotic, but it's considered a high nickel alloy. Um, and it's a trade name called AL6XN. So AL is uh, Allegheny Ludlum, but AL6XN is 6% molybdenum. So it's got a high moly content, and it also has a relatively high nickel content. And the, the content of um, those alloying ingredients in the composition makes certain steels such as AL6N relatively expensive because especially with nickel, the, you know, the price of nickel and the, the price of molybdenum um, are major cost drivers for the, the cost of stainless. If I'm buying a new tank, do I need to, or, or, you know, a bunch of tanks or brew house, whatever, do I need to specify any of that stuff beyond just, I want 316 or I want 304 um, or 304L or, or, or whatever, or, or do I need to go beyond that? Or is all that going to be sort of implied when I make that specification? Well, that's a great question, John. I, I don't think that anything's implied um, because, you know, the old expression, you know, what, what assumptions do is they, you know, they make an asset of you and me. So if, if you assume that I'm supplying you, if I'm the supplier, if you're assuming that I'm supplying one grade, you know, my assumption might be completely different than your assumption. So I think it's, it's an, uh, important for both the supplier and the, the buyer to be clear on what's being purchased. So for the most part, it is true if you're buying a food grade stainless steel, the assumption that it's 304 is probably not a bad assumption, but um, not all suppliers have the same you know, code of conduct when it comes to that kind of that thing. So I, I would definitely want to clarify what the alloy composition is, and especially with hot water tanks. There's reasons to specify alloys that are different than 304 or 316 for hot water tanks. So no assumptions can be made about um, the composition of so-called exotic um, equipment. 
Okay. We'll get more into the why on that in a few minutes. Um, before we do that, though, what about if I buy a used tank uh, and I can't work with the manufacturer directly to find out you know, what's in there? How do I figure out what it is? Well, that's that's another great question. There's actually an x-ray gun. You point at the equipment, you push it kind of like a, one of those infrared uh, thermometers, and this uh, x-ray um, piece of equipment will actually tell you the alloy composition of the, the steel in question. And that particular uh, piece of equipment is expensive. Those are about, they start at $20,000 and go up in price, but they can be rented. And you can also, you know, bring in a, a third-party inspector that has that type of equipment to assess the um, the type of steel that you're purchasing if you're buying something that's used and unknown. And where, um, who who would I rent that from? What's the type of vendor where I could get access to that if I needed to? You know, I've never looked at. Um, you know where to rent one from, but I would I would go to like a welding, a, a large welding supply store. You know, a place like um, yeah, Air Products or you know a company like that that supplies welding gases and welding consumables. Um, and oftentimes, if one of those companies doesn't have that type of equipment, oftentimes they know local inspectors that might have that sort of um, device. Okay, cool. That's good advice. Um, uh, on a more basic level, uh, can you tell us why stainless? why stainless is the industry standard for brewery equipment? Yeah, if you look back at history, um, stainless steel really, it hasn't been around that long. It it was invented um, and really became uh, commercialized in the early 1900s. Um, but as far as the widespread use in the food industry, probably wasn't until the, the late 40s, early 50s, until stainless steel became really, really common. Um, and in particular with brewing equipment, if you look back, you know, let's go back into to 1940, 1950 and look look at the kind of the norm equipment. You know, if you were in the brew house, um, you know, copper was the, the common um, equipment uh, material for, for manufacturing for vessels. But let's jump into louder ton. You know, if we're in a 1940s, 1950s louder ton, probably had uh, bronze screens were common. Um, and then the Reiki machine oftentimes was made out of carbon steel. So, and even like some of the older louder tons, the, the shells were made out of carbon, you know, the, the inner vessel itself was carbon and, and they would have like a copper top on them. So that, that's not, um, atypical. So the advantage of the copper and carbon steel is that they're both malleable, you know, they're easy to form, you know, with carbon steel, um, easy to weld. And then if we go into the cellar, um, back in the forties and fifties or, you know, before that, it was pretty common to find carbon steel tanks that were lined with glass. So those tanks were, you know, fabricated out of carbon steel. Um, liquid glass was, you know, in the vessel and the vessels were rolled to, to glass line those. But the, you know, the problems with uh, that type of lining is that if it cracks, which, you know, the glass linings do crack and, and even polymers now that have replaced glass can, can crack. If you get a crack in a lined carbon steel tank, then you can get uh, corrosion between the lining and the exterior, the you know the carbon steel exterior vessel, and not only corrosion, but you can get microbiological growth occurring. So over time, you know you can have a tank that basically can't be cleaned, and you know is kind of a microbiological hotspot. So when when stainless steel was um, first invented um, as an alloy, and there's you know different alloys were used. Um, 
the types of stainless steels that are used for making beer equipment were settled upon because they're uh, you can form them, so they're, they have malleability, and they're relatively easy to weld. So the you know 304 and 316, those austenitic grades tend to be easy to form and easy to weld. So if you look at a modern tank like a you know, if you look at a fermenter that has a, a domed or so-called dished and flanged top, the, the dished and flanged top starts out as a flat piece of stainless steel. And the kind of the old school method of making dishes was to, they call it head bumping. So you basically, you press the head, you pr- press the material into this dish shape, and that's the foundation of the head. Um, problem with the dish is it doesn't have any rigidity to it. So then if you put a knuckle on it with a flanging tool, you know, flanging machine, the the knuckle radius adds uh, strength to the head, and it becomes rigid. Um, a more modern way of doing that is to use either a hydro uh, press or even an air um, head press or air inflation, if you will. So basically, you take a flat piece of steel, you clamp it down in, into a you know certain type of press that you know basically is a hydraulic uh, clamp. And then you can blow it up with air pressure and form the, the dish like that and then go and flange it. So to answer your question, why stainless steel? It's, um, it's malleable, but un- unlike copper or, or iron, you know, carbon steel, stainless steel is resistant to corrosion. All right, let's talk about um, – what do you say we talk about all the things that can go wrong with stainless steel? <laughs> Sounds um, good. Because there are some of those. So let's start off with um, – let's start, start off with chloride pitting. Well, chloride pitting is – unfortunately is a relatively common problem. So with chloride pitting, it's important to you know, remember what we're talking about, you know, specific chloride, so Cl minus. So if we take, you know, like – Salt water, for example, sodium chloride. If we have chloride in stainless steel, what happens is the let's back up for a second. With stainless steel, there's this outer layer that we call the passive layer. So the passive layer is just a few atoms thick, but it's a chromium oxide layer. And the chromium oxide layer on stainless steel uh, is what imparts the um, the corrosion resistance. But with chlorides, chlorides can um, essentially attack that that passive layer. And um, you get a, a failure in the chromium oxide film, and then it exposes the steel below the chromium oxide uh, to that chloride, and the chloride is reactive. And you can um, essentially you can get a pit in the tank, which is a you know surface problem. But over time, that pit can grow in diameter, it can grow in depth, and eventually, um, pitting from chloride uh, corrosion can. Um, quite literally put a hole in a tank. So one one great example, uh, a visual example of chloride pitting is in tanks that have li- liquid adjuncts. So if you look at you know how, how liquid adjuncts or sugar uh, syrups are made, there's really two primary methods of manufacturing of the syrups. One's is, one is enzymatic and the other is acid hydrolysis. And with acid hydrolysis, chlor- hydrochloric acid is commonly used. So if you have a, a syrup that's high and chlorides, because it was um, manufactured by using acid hydrolysis, the chloride that's residual in that liquid sugar can eat holes in stainless steel tanks. And where I used to work, we we had some pictures of tanks that literally looked like steel that was like 
had blood pouring from his pores. It was like a molasses tank, which is this, you know, dark liquid that was just kind of seeping out of the tank because the tank was full of holes. So that's, wow. that's called chloride pitting corrosion. Now in a brewery, we don't have that many things that have a lot of chloride in them, but uh, liquid adjuncts are a very real example of how uh, chloride pitting can occur in a brewery. Now, the other place that chloride pitting can occur in a brewery is if you have um, a reaction between let's say a chlorinated cleaner, such as chlorinated caustic and acid. So let's say you clean a tank with, um, with a chlorinated cleaner or maybe not even a chlorinated cleaner. Let's say you, you uh, caustic clean, you rinse, and then you go and you do an acid cycle and you rinse. And then now you go and do a sanitation with, with hypochlorite bleach. So if you're using chlorinated caustic, for cleaning, or if you're using a sodium hypochlorite for sanitation, when you expose either one of those to an acid, you can have the um, the formation of hydrochloric acid. You can have the formation of chlorine gas, which condenses as hydrochloric acid on the surface of the steel. And with hydrochloric acid, then you have a, a very intense spot of you know of Cl minus on the surface of the steel, and you can get very very aggressive pitting. Um, from that that mechanism as well. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. I mean, you know, it's not uncommon to use like a, a foaming um, a chlorinated caustic, you know, for, on the exterior of, of of equipment sometimes. And I, I've definitely seen. I mean, that that chloride pitting is a very uh, it's very obvious when you see it. You know exactly what it is. You know, um, you know, I can't remember if we talked about this on the episode that we did with John Palmer a while back. But um, another place that this sometimes can happen is actually in the brew house. Um, and, and we've seen that before if you simply, um, regularly spill, um, uh, calcium chloride on the, on your tank as you're, you know, uh, going to dose some of that into your, 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 um, your mash or whatever. Um, if that gets spilled routinely on the top of your vessel and not cleaned off, you can actually get the same thing from that too, can't you? Absolutely. That, that's actually a great example, John, of, of that very type of corrosion. And that, that is pretty common where, you know, especially if you have a hot water tank or, you know, whatever that you're adding salts to. Um, and let's say that you're, I don't want to say sloppy, but if somebody doesn't notice that they've dripped a little bit of either dry salt or a liquid salt solution around the manway over time, that can, that can definitely lead to pitting on the exterior of the vessel. Um, but I think more critically, if it's on the interior and you don't notice it because it's maybe hidden, you know, over time, that can become a problem. Yeah, absolutely true. Okay, um, this one's a little more obscure, but um, uh, and I've seen it not really so much uh, in vessels as so much as in piping, uh, in process piping, um, and that's uh, galvanic corrosion. So why don't you explain what that is? Well, galvanic corrosion is basically... You know, the, the name kind of implies what it is. It's, it's basically a battery. So if you have dissimilar metals that are in contact with one another, you can have this so-called, you know, galvanic corrosion. Now, outside of stainless steel, um, galvanic corrosion is quite common in plumbing, or hopefully it's not common, but unfortunately, oftentimes it is where dissimilar metals are joined. Uh, so in plumbing, like if you're going to have copper attached to a carbon steel uh, pipe, you want to have a, a galvanic um, union, you know, so, um, so that you don't have the that buffers that break breaks the 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 battery, basically. Yeah, exactly. So that's an example of um, 
galvanic corrosion that's not in stainless steel. But in stainless steel, galvanic corrosion could be where you have, let's say, um, stainless steel, and you have a fastener connected to the stainless steel, let's say a pipe hanger. So the, the pipe hanger um, is connected to a stainless steel uh, tube. And oftentimes, if you look at pipe hangers, there's a you know a rubber dampener or some kind of PVC insert, and the pipe hanger is usually made out of stainless steel. But where where these kind of problems sometimes occur is when people accidentally use them a fastener that's an incompatible material. So let's say you're you know working in a shop and you're bolting things together, and you accidentally have a bolt that's not stainless steel, but maybe it's uh you know like a zinc plated uh, carbon or just a ordinary carbon steel and then you get rust so that even though it appears to be rust really what's happening is the the mild steel and the stainless steel are you know in contact and you get this galvanic type corrosion that that does look like rust but it basically is um depleting the steel um and it, it does eat away at the passive layer and once that happens then then the steel is subject to um you know more intense corrosion I have absolutely seen that happen. Um, not that long ago, actually, just uh, you know, a random bolt in a um, in a in a pipe holder, you know, for a um, uh, for the drain drain pipe on a on a fermenter, you know, just uh, for whatever reason they put the wrong one in. So it's you know, after after a couple months of use, you start to see that rust spot, and you know exactly what happened. Yeah, it's uh, you know, human error happens, and it's, usually those things are not intentional. You know, another thing that can happen that's similar to that is using the wrong weld wire. Um, which is, I wouldn't say that that's very common, but if, if there's a shop has different types of weld wire in the shop and a welder accidentally used the wrong wire, uh, you know, the, the weld wire can be the wrong material and you can get corrosion in a weld seam. And, you know, no matter what you do, it just, you know, persists. Another, another way of having that kind of corrosion is if, uh, if carbon steel is welded to the outside of the vessel for structural support, um, you can have that that galvanic corrosion. So it's usually good practice if you're going to weld something carbon steel to a vessel to put what's called a poison pad between your carbon and the actual vessel. So you would weld like a pad of stainless steel to the exterior, and then you can weld you know carbon steel to the the so-called poison pad. And if there is corrosion, the poison pad acts to buffer, you know, to you know give you like a protective layer between your your carbon on the outside and the, and the stainless on the inside just buys time though right <laughs> yeah pretty much um uh so i, I think a big t- you already mentioned but i think a big takeaway there is that folks should really pay attention to especially anytime you have a um like a cip arm or a or any type of you know process pipe that has a hanger on it or whatever you, you want to really make sure because most people aren't going to spring for stainless steel you know pipe hangers and things like that if, if they don't have to so you really want to make sure that those little rubber gaskets or pvc or whatever is in there um you know if it's if it you want to make sure it's seated properly and that it's that it's there that it's you know if it's supposed to be there that it's actually there because you see that a lot where you know okay well this one was missing a pad but so what you know well that's what yeah, that's totally true. And the other thing about that is that if you've got a like those little rubber uh, cushions that go between a like a tube hanger, you know, process piping hanger, and and the tube itself, um, the good thing about the rubber um, bumpers, if you will, they give an airspace between the metal hanger and your process piping. If you've got a clamp that actually clamps on there, then the clamp can exclude oxygen, and 
even if it's stainless steel, if you've got stainless steel clamped on stainless steel, if you get water between those two uh, contact points, over time, you can have a depletion of the uh, passive layer. And over time, you can have corrosion uh, between those uh, surfaces. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to one of my favorites, and I think probably one of your favorites too, or I don't know if favorite's the right word, but um, uh, let's talk about stress corrosion cracking, because uh, a lot of people don't know what that means. That is one of my favorites, and I've, I hate to say it, I've gotten into arguments with people about scr- stress corrosion cracking who didn't think it was uh, something that would be a problem, and I was just talking to uh, a friend the other day, uh, Carl Okert, and Carl was just commenting that you know that's something he sees on a, on a fairly regular basis and breweries that have been around for a while. So stress corrosion cracking, the the really bad thing about it is that most types of um, stainless steel corrosion can be repaired, like chloride pitting as an example. Even if a pit goes all the way through stainless steel, um, you can fix it. But if you have one pit that's gone through the steel, chances are you've got more. But nonetheless, with uh, chloride pitting, you can go in and you can you know, you can clean up the pit. You can you can weld over it and grind over it, and make it go away. With stress corrosion cracking, it changes the um, the matrix of the stainless steel, and the stainless steel becomes very brittle. And the stress corrosion cracking is um, it's kind of like fractured glass. And there's nothing that can be done to repair it, other than cutting out the the damaged section and welding in a patch. Or if the entire tank is um, you know, eaten up with stress corrosion cracking, it pretty much ruins the vessel. So what are the causes? Um, well, the name stress corrosion is one of the causes. So there's residual stresses in vessels, and the, the residual uh, stresses can be forming stresses. So earlier I mentioned, like, forming a knuckle on a um, on a tank head. That might have residual stress in it. Um, probably not, but it could. Now, if you look at, like, a, a preformed uh, heat transfer surface, that's been um, mechanically formed, um, like a dimple jacket as an example, or an inflated jacket. There, there could be uh, residual stress where the material has been formed, um, probably more on dimple jackets than inflated because there's more uh, call to work required. So that's a residual stress. So that's one requirement. The other is a um, is chloride. So it's really called chloride stress corrosion cracking. So there's stress, chloride, Oxygen is required um, in very low levels, so there's almost always enough oxygen. Uh, the minimum temperature is about 125 degrees Fahrenheit, which is really not that hot, and time are the five ingredients for stress corrosion cracking. And the most common uh, place we see this in breweries is in hot water tanks because you've got, you probably have residual stress. Uh, chloride, unless you're using you know, RO or distilled water is always present in water. You've got elevated temperature that's just, you know, it's always hot oxygen and you've got time. So hot water tanks are really the the most common. But another common uh, place we stre- see stress corrosion cracking is in the brew house on hot vessels. So the kind of the classic uh, scenario of stress corrosion cracking is you have a tank that has a, a steam line coming into it. And when you're using the steam line, you turn on the jacket the material expands and then you turn it off and it contracts. So there's this thermal cycling. And if you have a a steam line that's not properly braced or if it's not allowed to flow properly, you know, like if it's uh, welded to the outside jacket, that movement over time can be um, a force that will weaken a weld. 
So let's say that a weld cracks, which is not uncommon um, in that area, and now you've got steam leaking through the crack. So now we've got uh, liquid coming in, and let's say we've got an insulating material that contains chloride. Well, truth is most insulation materials may contain some chloride, even the ones that are so-called uh, chloride-free are usually technically classified as low chloride. So there's maybe chloride present in very low levels, or if you have something like a fiberglass or a polyurethane or polyisocyanurate insulation has more chloride in it, you can concentrate chloride in that area. So you've got temperature, high chloride concentration, um, and you get stress corrosion cracking in those particular areas. Very, very common uh, to see that. And I've seen it. It's like one of those um, cartoons where you know there's like a, he's trying to plug all the holes in the in the dam with his various fingers and toes and stuff. You know, once you start <laughs> welding on it, like you're just chasing it. Just start, I've I've watched it. You start welding on it, it just starts to crack and you know from the edges of there, and you, you start chasing it around, and it's you're done. It's impossible. Yeah. 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 I had it. Um, you mentioned old, older tanks. I saw it exactly. I had a, a hot liquor tank that my, my very first brewery, um, which was down in Blacksburg in the early two thousands, I had bought some used equipment. So it would have been like, you know, uh, 1990s or maybe even 1980s, you know, Pacific Northwest, uh, brewing equipment that, uh, I brought over to the East coast. And so this, you know, this thing had already seen a lot of use and, um, and, uh, you know, just like you said, it had all the ingredients. Uh, yeah, that was a nightmare. Yeah, and they're really textbook. It's like you can, if you describe the scenario of like how it happens, and then you go look in the field where, you know, this stuff really happens and um, you analyze the situation, usually with stress corrosion cracking, it, it's almost textbook. You know, it's like you got all the ingredients and it's like, boom, that's that's where it happens. And, you know, the, the company I used to work for, Paul Mueller Company, um, Back in the early days, one of the first things they built out of stainless steel were uh, dairy tanks. So there's a you know a ton of Mueller dairy tanks out in the in the world, and uh, a lot of breweries today still use use dairy tanks, you know, so called milk coolers for different things in a brewery. And it's really really hard for me to walk in a brewery and see a milk cooler without saying something about it because one of the most common kind of aftermarket uses of a milk cooler is for hot water. And milk coolers are almost always insulated with a foam insulation um, or in the old days, fiberglass, um, and they're not compatible with heat. So milk coolers um, that are insulated with, with foam or fiberglass um, are really, really prone to stress corrosion cracking. All right. Good to know. Uh, is there anything we can do about it? Is there anything we can do to get in front of it? Or can we use, a, you know, um, aside from trying to, you know, reduce the various variables involved, which is pretty hard to do in most hot liquor tanks, what, what else can we do? Well, the easiest thing to do is to, um, if a brewery is buying a new tank, especially if a, a brewery has, let's say, had a tank that failed, um, you know, it's kind of like the definition of um, insanity is, you know, repeating the same mistake over and over again. So if the root cause of a, of a tank failure, uh, hot water tank failure from stress corrosion cracking is material incompatibility, we'll then pick another material. So the, the two materials that, in my experience, that I saw the most were, uh, I've already mentioned one, AL6XN, which is this high molly, so it's 6% molybdenum. And I, I think that AL6 is 22% nickel. It's really high nickel 
it's a very, very expensive alloy. It's like six times the price of 304. Um, so AL66N was pretty um, popular back in the 90s because there weren't a lot of different options. Um, but one option back at that, that time was at 2205. So 2205 is a so-called duplex steel. And a duplex steel is basically a combination of austenitic and ferritic. Um, ferritic steels are magnetic, and they're typically not used um, in brewing applications. Um, but they can be used, and uh, they're not common. But um, you know, some steels are naturally magnetic, and those are called ferritic steels. But duplex uh, 2205 is a grade, and uh, 2205 and AL66N are essentially impervious to stress corrosion cracking. So unlike uh, AL66N, 2205 is actually very low in nickel. So with stress corrosion cracking, there's this weird-looking curve where if you're really low in nickel, you have a decreased risk of stress corrosion cracking. And if it's you know uh, relatively high in nickel, then it's also a low risk. But for the, the typical austenitic grades of 304 and 316, they're both susceptible to stress corrosion cracking. And to the um, a lot of people think that 316 is great for hot water tanks, but 316 is as equally susceptible to stress corrosion cracking as 304. Um, but 2205 is actually a, a fairly common alloy for hot water tanks. And some of the larger breweries, um, you know, there's really two big breweries in the U.S. right now, um, they both specify 2205 for hot water vessels. And a lot of the, the craft brewers that have been around for a while also are building or having tanks built out of 2205 for, um, for hot water applications. But it sounds like it's going to cost you. Yeah, but 2205 is not nearly as expensive as AL66N. So okay. it's, um, and the thing about 2205 is that it, it really, it doesn't like to have heat transfer put on it because it, it's pretty hard to form. It, um, it has a real springiness to it. So usually for 2205 hot water tanks, uh, the tank is heated externally with a heat exchanger, like a pump loop heat exchanger or an internal heating coil. Um, it's very, very rare that you see a 2205 tank with um, heat transfer jacket on it. So they're they're actually not that much more expensive when you really look at the total installed cost of the vessel. Coming up. And that's a very non-obvious way of collapsing a vessel, but it happens all the time. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. 
Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. Even the best yeast deserves a helping hand with seltzer fermentation, which is why Pathfinder N-Pure Seltzer Nutrient ensures reliable and complete fermentation of a seltzer base while providing a clean, neutral fermentation profile. Not to mention, it provides all the essential nutrients required by yeast for production of hard seltzer bases fermented from those sweet, refined sugars. Give your seltzer yeast a boost by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com and searching for Pathfinder N-Pure Seltzer Nutrient or call BSG at 1-800-374-2739. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. I hope you'll join me on Thursday, October 28th in Cleveland for a live version of Ask the Brewmasters. Panelists include soon-to-be Master Brewers President Andy Tavikram from Market Garden Breweries, Travis Audet from Anheuser-Busch InBev, and Vinny Chilerzo from Russian River. If you haven't already registered for the conference, use the link in the show notes to register now. District Mid-South meets virtually October 14th. District Northern Illinois meets October 21st at Short Fuse Brewing. The District Northwest Fall Meeting, formerly at Hood River, is now going to be virtual October 22nd. There's one big meeting that's on my calendar. I hope it's on yours. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. And don't forget the world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins October 31st. District Philly reclaims its old meeting spot at the Wyndham and Old City, November 5th and 6th. I'm looking forward to the District Mid-Atlantic meeting the weekend of November 12th in Virginia Beach. Hope to see you there. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. I hope you'll join me in Cleveland Friday, October 29th for something really special. I'll be doing a live interview with fan favorite Joe Hertrick as he receives the Master Brewers Distinguished Life Service Award. Joe has been educating brewers and maltsters for more than 50 years, and I can't wait to give conference attendees a glimpse into Joe's lifetime of service. If you still haven't registered for the conference, do it now, and don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Now back to the show. So Ashton, my shiny new brewery just got delivered and I'm ready to get all of the tanks CIP'd so that I can get started brewing yesterday. What might be on my tanks that may need to be cleaned differently than typical beer soils? When you get a new tank, um, there can be all kinds of crap on the tank, just to put it <laughs> in kind of a crude, crude sense. So where does this stuff come from that's on tanks? Well, some of the... Um, the non uh, stainless steel stuff on the tank can come from the shop. So if the, you know, if there's any lubricants that are used in manufacturing, um, those can remain on tanks because the truth is most tanks, uh, most tank manufacturers don't have like CIP systems in their shop that they're cleaning their steel, uh, you know, after fabrication. So you can have lubricants, uh, you can have dust, you know, stainless steel is polished all the time. So there's all kinds of grinding dust in manufacturing facilities. So that dust is, um, 
you know, sticks to tanks that have oils on them. So you can have oils, dust, and then the nastiest stuff comes from the road. So you can have road dust. And oftentimes road dust, depending on the time of year, um, can contain salts, you know, from, let's say, you know, road salts for uh, ice melting or dust that's uh, like brake dust, which is full of iron. Um, so all of those things are probably on your on your two new tanks to some degree. And then there's another nasty thing that stainless steel could have on it, and that's called adhesive residue. So stainless steel in manufacturing is oftentimes protected with PVC paper. And these PVC films that are used to protect steel are stuck on the surface with different adhesives. And as it turns out, these adhesives oftentimes don't like to be removed from stainless. And at one time, I was kind of doing research on the, the history of adhesive film residues. And you can find online chats going back about 30 years uh, with respect to adhesive film residues. So a combination of those are often present when you get new equipment. Okay, so how exactly do I clean that stuff off? Because, um, you know, this is not going to, using my normal brewery caustic is probably not going to work here. Not normally. So what does is, what is normal brewery caustic do a really good job removing? Um, does a pretty good job at removing greases. You know, it, it's going to remove oils pretty well. The problem with using strong caustic, though, is that depending on other things that are on the steel, you can set up chemical reactions by changing pH. So the good news is that most um, corrosion reactions are not favored by alkaline conditions. But these adhesive film residues, unfortunately, um, and there's a lot of different residues, and it's difficult to find out what the um, the paper manufacturers use because um, I've tried to do that before. But we know that um, some of these adhesives are actually uh, made more difficult to remove if you first clean your tank with caustic which really kind of stinks for the owner because you don't always know that those residues are, are present. So one really, really good cleaner to use on a tank before using your typical CIP chemicals is to first rinse it with water. So that's, you know, the first step would be, a, you know, a water rinse, preferably hot water, you know, warm water, and then some sort of mild um, alkaline cleaner that uh, hopefully has some type of degreaser in it. And one of the really effective uh, degreasers that's uh, commonly used in many industries are peel oil-based um, cleaners. You know, so like an orange peel, like a limonene um, a solvent cleaner um, it works really well. And a lot of those types of cleaners are made up in a um, alkaline solution like sodium metasilicate or, you know, something like that. So those are, those are a mild um, they're actually really good for hand cleaning, you know, so you can use them with, um, with manual uh, cleaning pads or even like, um, you know, cleaning mops, if you will, a specialized, um, like 3M makes a product called a doodle bug. You can look it up, but, uh, these soft, uh, white pads that, you know, no abrasives, but if you use something like that to get off machining oils and adhesive residue first, thoroughly rinse and then go into your your normal tank cip with caustic and then water and then acid and then water um and then if you're going to passivate you know then you would passivate after thoroughly cleaning the surface all right 
Um, what about um, what about dealing with like metal shavings or metal dust from grinding? So like you know I've had a lot of instances where you have to do uh, some sort of you know tank repair or some touch up or something, and you know it's terrible because you just generate all this dust. Um, what's what's the best thing to do with that? Well, the general rule with um, with you know dust in general, you want to use some type of you know surfactant to help. Uh, you know, carry that dust away. So something that's soapy and uh, reduces the surface tension of water will help remove dust. So like these, um, you know, metasilicate plus uh, limonene, for example, you know, those peel oil cleaners oftentimes um, have surfactants in them that help move away. In fact, I think metasilicate would be considered a surfactant. Um, but the problem with, with grinding is that um, there's a high likelihood of um, carbon steel residue left after grinding so the, the the best practice on that would be to clean the vessel you know remove the dust and then to passivate to remove any uh, free iron that might be on the surface and the you know the two the two acids that really are the ones that that are most effective for passivation is either nitric so nitric is a you know an oxidizing acid or a citric acid solution that preferably has chelators in it um, EDTA is the one that's most common with that uh, with citric acid passivation. So EDTA plus citric acid, and a you know at a certain concentration and temperature works really well for passivation, and it's a lot safer than using nitric acid. Cool. And I think um, one thing that we just should mention that I think is maybe more common, more of a common occurrence than people might realize is just you know if you do end up needing to to, to to hop inside of a vessel to, for, for whatever reason, um, you know, you want to think about your shoes, right? Because were you just out in the parking lot, you know, where you're getting potentially brake dust uh, on your shoes and then carrying those over into the, into the tank. Um, so that's, that's an area where just, you know, maybe comment on, you know, on what to do about that. Yeah. When I worked at Paul Mueller company, the, the you know, the policy was, you know, number one, you don't enter a tank without con confined space considerations because you never know what the the gas atmosphere in a vessel is going to be so you know whenever you enter in a tank you know you, you've got to go through your confined space protocols um you know measuring the um the gas environment is basically you know standard procedure and, and required for safe tank entry and, and also having a you know a hull watch while you're inside the vessel but putting on at a bare minimum putting on booties you know, like a shoe covering um, is important before getting into a tank. But I don't even trust booties because if you've got a lot of, uh, let's say, you know, abrasive stuff on the bottom of your shoes, you can easily wear through um, a booty, you know, like this little... Um, like like Tyvek or whatever, yeah. Yeah, like a Tyvek uh, shoe cover. So a lot of times at Mueller, the, the guys that would spend time in tanks grinding would take their shoes off and wear socks in the vessels. Because you're you're not really in there with uh, anything you're going to drop on your feet, but you know having you don't want to have um, things in a vessel that are going to you know cause uh, surface scratching. Okay, cool. All right. Well, we've already talked about a lot of stuff that can go wrong with um, stainless. Um, let's expand that a little bit and talk about some. Um, uh, let's talk about vacuums. Um, let's let's hear. I know you've got a lot to say about that. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about um, some, some of these vacuum conditions that can, can occur and ruin a tank, uh, in a lot 
shorter amount of time than uh, corrosion. Yeah, vacuum became kind of like my um, my topic of my passion topic there for a long time because because vacuum. You know, if you're let's put ourselves in in the practical brewer position, which we both uh, been in that that environment before. You know, if you make a mistake in the brew house and you let's say you ruin a you know a batch of wort or you, you use the wrong raw material, you know you you dump in you know a couple bags of uh, roasted malt instead of crystal malt or whatever, you feel kind of you know bad because you've you've ruined a batch of beer, but at the end of the day, it's just you know. It's just wort or it's just beer. But when you suck down a tank, chances are that tank is toast and it happens very quickly. So there's a couple common ways of sucking a tank. And there's a lot more zeros behind the, the, the price tag. On that. <laughs> there's a lot more zeros behind the price tag of the tank. And then, you know, depending on where the tank is located, you know, can you even get it out and re- replace it? You know, if it's buried inside of a cellar, it may not be. Uh, very easy to move out, so it can be uh, a very uh, disruptive thing to have happen in your your brewery. So let, let's take a couple scenarios. Let's look at a um, a water tank, and you think about a water tank. You know, um, hot water tanks are overfilled all the time during during work cooling. Um, now, a water tank that's designed properly will have a siphon break on a siphon breaker on the vessel, so when the tank overflows. You know, water can leave the tank and overflow and then stop when the overflow condition is stopped. Um, but if you don't have a siphon breaker, and the easiest way to put a siphon break on the tank is basically just to overflow to atmosphere um, and then put a funnel underneath it. So there's a break between the overflow line and the down tube that goes down to the ground. Um, or you can have like a T and you point the T up. So the top of the T is exposed to air and then the bottom of the T goes down to the floor level. So that's a properly installed overflow. If you simply have a overflow line that you know exits the tank and the tank is not vented, you overflow a tank and then it starts to overflow. Well, it continues to overflow because you formed a siphon and you can literally uh, suck down a tank by overfilling it. And that's a very non-obvious way of collapsing a vessel, but it happens all the time in dairy processing plants because. Uh, Raw milk silos typically don't have vacuum breakers on them. So you drive around long enough and you look at milk plants and you'll see tanks that have collapsed tops on them. So that's overflow. If we go into CIP a tank, let's say we've got a you know fermenter and it's um, you know had been full of beer, we pumped it out. Now it's full of CO2. If we don't evacuate the CO2 properly and bring in a high concentration of caustic for cleaning, the caustic can react with the carbon dioxide and essentially you have an immediate uh, change of state from gas CO2 to a, um, a liquid in the form of sodium bicarbonate or, you know, sodium bicarbonate solution. So you have um, immediate phase change and you have a, a rapid vacuum occurring, which can suck down a tank. So that's, that's caustic plus CO2. And then the third way that's, very common and probably the most common is you've got a, let's say you hot clean a tank and you go and you rinse it with cold water and the tank is not properly vented. Well, now you have a very, very rapid change of um, gas volume. You should go from hot to cold and that can cause the tank to, to collapse. And then the fourth method, not so common, but not uncommon, is if you remove a fitting from a tank and it goes into a free draining mode, 
or if you accidentally open it out at valve and somehow not notice it. Typically, it's like if you knock a fitting off of a tank, it goes into a free draining mode and the liquid leaves the tank faster than gas can come in. You can have a, you know, a vacuum occur and the tank will collapse. Going back to that, the caustic scenario, um, just how much uh, I, I, I've, you know, I've heard that uh, f- for many years, but I've never, thankfully, never witnessed that happen before. Um, and I've always kind of been surprised by that because I've seen a lot of people that, you know, really turn around a tank pretty quickly. Um, so I guess I'm wondering if you could comment on sort of the, um, you know, is that only going to happen if it's just, you know, uh, really full of straight CO2? Uh, is it not, uh, not going to matter so much if there's a little bit of CO2 in there as long as the tank is adequately vented while you're um, while you're starting that caustic cycle or, you know, what, what are some of the, um, the ways to really be sure you're safe there? Well, that's, that's a great question. Cause I would say that that's a relatively uncommon form of failure in a craft brewery. Um, it, it really is about uh, stoichiometry. So if you're looking at the, um, you know, the, the molecules of CO2 in the tank and the number of molecules of sodium hydroxide, in order for this reaction to happen, you have to have sufficient, uh, um, sodium hydroxide to, to push the reaction. So if you bring in, let's say, a, a relatively weak cost, caustic solution at a relatively low flow rate, and there is some venting, if the if the formation of sodium bicarbonate is not real rapid, then you're probably not going to have any real issues. I mean, the real issue there is that you weaken your caustic, and if you're not paying attention to this stuff, you may not even clean your tank because you've neutralized your right. caustic. But if you did it in a closed environment where you're you're bringing in a relatively high flow rate of you know good strength caustic into a tank that's not vented, so like you know large tanks oftentimes don't have you know manways that are open during CIP. You know if it's a closed cleaning tank and there's no vent line. Where there's no open valve during CIP, that's where the problem really can happen. And th- that's a fun experiment. I've done this several times as a demonstration. But if you take a, a milk jug and fill it with CO2, just you know, you know, flush gas into it, and then dump uh, a little caustic in there and close the lid and shake it and watch it implode, it, it happens pretty rapidly. All right. Why don't you mention some of the various options out there for vacuum relief? Well, the okay, so vacuum relief is, um, you know, you asked earlier about uh, selecting your CO, uh, your uh, your type of carbon, or, I'm sorry, your your stainless steel alloy. So, you know, when you're buying a tank, you know, you, you do want to specify your, your alloy. Now, when you're also buying a tank, you probably want to specify your vacuum relief because um, different vacuum relief valves operate at different pressures. So the most common type of vacuum relief that we see in a craft brewery is, um, and when I say a craft brewery, I mean, let's let's say tanks that are less than maybe about a hundred barrels is a combination pressure slash vacuum relief valve. So they're spring loaded and that type of vacuum relief valve does relieve vacuum, but it takes a fairly high pressure to open the valve, you know, negative pressure uh, to to open the valve and bring in gas. Um, and when you size a vacuum relief valve, what you really want to do is size it for a particular um, scenario. So let's say we're sizing a relief valve uh, to allow the gas in the tank to cool from 
you know, let's say 60 degrees Celsius or 140 Fahrenheit down to 20 Celsius or 68 Fahrenheit over a time period. So, you know, if you tell your vacuum relief supplier, I want a valve that's able to handle a tank of this size cooling from 60 Celsius to 20 Celsius over, you know, uh, a two minute period or whatever, they can calculate the gas flow required to, you know, make up that volume change. And that's going to drive the size of your, your relief valve. Um, the problem with some of those smaller vacuum relief valves is that the gas flow rate that those valves um, allow is relatively small compared to the duty. Um, another, the, the most extreme duty for most tanks is if you accidentally knock the outlet valve off the tank or remove it when it's full of beer, you're going to have a free draining scenario, which is really rapid um, removal of liquid. and you can size your vacuum relief valve for that condition. So the flow rate is one thing that goes into valve selection. The other is, is what pressure is required to open the valve. Um, the deadweight style vacuum relief valves that, that open by um, having a wafer basically fall into the tank. There's an O-ring on the top of the wafer that seals uh, to the bottom side of the um the mating flange is usually at the top of the tank those um, can have a very very low opening pressure and they they typically allow a high volume of gas to pass through the valve um, another valve that's similar to that is a a spring-loaded valve that's not a combination pressure vacuum but a a large valve that's on the top of the vessel that has a very very a light spring pressure that allows the valve to to quickly open I think the weirdest one I've seen was um, from like a, again, like a 80s or 1980s, 1990s tank. And it was like a, it had a rubber ball in like a, uh, essentially like a, a sharpened piece of, of stainless steel that would, that would pierce the ball. Um, it was, it was, it was very strange. Um, but um, I just wanted to mention that um, brewers should be sure to um, not just ignore these valves and, and assume that they're they're functional and they're working because these are the kind of things it just takes a little tiny bit of beer residue in there to gum them up to the point that they don't function properly so you really do need to be um taking these things off of the tank uh you know during each cleaning cycle and inspecting them preferably you know taking them apart as much as possible um and and making sure that there's there's nothing in there that can make them stick i completely agree with that john that's that's great um Great thing to point out is, uh, yeah, clean them every single time. One reason why I personally like the um, the so-called deadweight vacuum relief valves is that with that style of valve, you can put a air actuator on the on the valve, and they're basically it's just a little finger, if you will, that pushes up. So there's a little a pneumatic actuator that when you send air to it, it pushes a you know like a little finger raises up and it, it pushes on the um, the lever of the deadweight relief valve and it will force the valve open. So during CIP, if that's actuated, not only is the, um, the tank open to the environment, but also the CIP solution will wash the top side of that valve and also the O-ring and the sealing surface so that, you know, the valve is serviced during CIP. Ashton, I've got single wall serving tanks in my brewery. The drawings and nameplate state that these tanks are 304 and have a working temperature of negative 10 to positive 120 C. 
I want to sanitize these tanks by filling them with 85C or 185F water from my hot liquor tank and then push that water back into my hot liquor tank with CO2 to create an oxygen-free environment before I fill them with beer. Can I assume these tanks can handle that thermal expansion or am I going to eventually end up with a weld failure? I would not think that you would have any problem at all with weld failure in that scenario. The The most common problem with, um, well, let me back up. The only problem that I'm aware of with thermal expansion with stainless steel is where the expansion is somehow um, prevented. And a really, really good example of that is that let's take that same scenario that you just described and let's change it from a single wall tank to a, a insulated and jacketed tank. So it's got an outer outer skin on it, insulation, and an inner you know pressure vessel. If that outer skin or that outer jacket is welded uh, rigidly to the inner tank, and this is the other condition, and if the tank is tall enough, what's going to happen is the inside of the tank is going to elongate. It's going to get taller, but the outer jacket is not exposed to that high temperature, and it's going to want to it's not going to move. So all the, all the thermal expansion is going to be putting pressure on the welds that hold that outer jacket to the, um, to the inner wall of the tank. So normally if, if you had a weld failure in that scenario, the, um, where the outer connects to the inner, that weld might fail, but that's not a huge deal because it's not a structural weld, but a more common scenario would be if you had a cooling jacket and let's say that the glycol line the glycol supply was welded to the inside of the, the tank, you know, basically the cooling jacket on the, on the inner, um, which you can't see. And it was also welded to the outer jacket. Then you've got thermal expansion there. That's going to tweak the weld that connects the glycol supply to the, to the heat transfer surface on the tank. And that's, that's an example of kind of a textbook example of where you could get weld failure from thermal cycling. That was Ashton Lewis here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you want more, check the show notes for a link to the District Great Plains presentation this episode was based on. I hope you'll join me in Cleveland Friday, October 29th for something really special. I'll be doing a live interview with fan favorite Joe Hertrick as he receives the Master Brewers Distinguished Life Service Award. Joe has been educating brewers and maltsters for more than 50 years, and I can't wait to give conference attendees a glimpse into Joe's lifetime of service. If you still haven't registered for the conference, do it now, and don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. I hope you'll join me on Thursday, October 28th in Cleveland for a live version of Ask the Brewmasters. Panelists include soon-to-be Master Brewers President Andy Tavikram from Market Garden Breweries, Travis Audette from Anheuser-Busch InBev, and Vinny Chilurzo from Russian River. If you haven't already registered for the conference, use the link in the show notes to register now. <laughs>